Welcome to American History Untucked. I'm your host, David Zilkinet. It's been a few weeks since our last show. Um, I've been away from Edinburgh, traveling in the United States, doing research and visiting family and some other things. But we're back for a new season and a whole new set of episodes. My guest for the first episode of this season, if you can call it that, is Anne Sarah Rubin, who has a new book out on Sherman's March uh, during the Civil War. And we're talking uh, in this conversation about that project, an interesting digital project that she uh, has been building in conjunction with a visual artist uh, to go along with the book and about uh, digital history more broadly. She was one of the uh, founding um, workers on the Valley of the Shadow project, which I think many listeners of the show are familiar with, and if not, there's a link to it um, on the show page. Here's my conversation with Anne. Welcome to the show. It's good to have you here. Congratulations on the book coming out. Thank you very much. And congratulations on having a sabbatical at the same time. That must feel good. <laughs> it does. It does. It's a big relief. Uh, so what got you interested in Sherman in the first place? Um, I got interested in it in Sherman in a, in a couple of, of ways. One, um, back in my, I guess it was probably my second year of graduate school when I read um, Charles Royster's book, The Destructive War. And I just, I thought that, that Sherman was fascinating. I thought the way that he unpacked um, Sherman's march was so interesting. I mean, that's really, that was a book that really influenced my thinking about so many things. Um, and then I started thinking about it more after, um, around the same time, I first saw Ross McElroy's movie, Sherman's March, where, if you're not familiar with it, he um, was going, he's a documentary filmmaker, he was going to make a documentary. Is that the book with his girlfriend? Yeah. yeah, so he was about to make this documentary, he breaks up with his girlfriend, and he goes home to North Carolina, and, and he's basically, like, he can't make the film, and he winds up making this crazy movie where he basically travels around the South and meets up with with his old girlfriends and tries to figure out why it didn't work out and it's just it's sort of bizarre and I thought why Sherman why Sherman's March why does this have the big cultural hold um so that's really where it came from it wasn't so much about the march itself as it is about I guess the and the ways in which, uh... Right, because I figured, I mean, by the time I started working on this, and, and um, I didn't start working on it, I started working in 2005, um, I, I knew at that point I didn't want to write about the march itself, because frankly, that's a story that's been pretty well told again and again and again, and so what I wanted to do was write about the meaning of the march, and that at the time that I started, I thought, you know, here's this event that's sort of maybe more symbolically important than, than real, and yet is constantly being used metaphorically. It has a lot of cultural power, of course. Um, Gone with the Wind, which I had first read in my eighth grade, I, mean, I guess 
I've I've seen the movie in, in eighth grade history class, um, and then once you're starting to actually not want to teach class because that movie is like I know. Oh, that's like two weeks worth of class. It's very appalling in a, in a lot of ways um, because I, I always say you know we watched it unironically. Um, you know we were studying the Civil War in eighth grade and we watched Gone with the Wind and and for a long time I didn't really um, appreciate. The, the historical aspects of it, but at any rate, so here's this event, you know, that has all of this cultural power surrounding it, and, and sort of how did we get there, and why Sherman's March, and, and also, um, <coughs> excuse me, so here's this event that we tend to think about now from really just the one perspective of, you know, Southerners still hating Sherman and complaining about Sherman, and and how did um, Sherman's veterans feel about having taken part in the march? How did African Americans feel about Sherman's march? So, so to try to paint a sort of broader picture of, of what the march meant, how those meanings change over time, what does it say? Oh, and the other piece that also now I remember um, had a really formative impact on me wanting to look at this was, again, right around the same couple of years early in graduate school. I also um, was introduced to James Reston's book, Sherman's March in Vietnam, where he makes the argument that you can sort of get to American actions in Vietnam, and particularly the Mirai Massacre, by starting with Sherman, that there's some kind of connection. And so I wanted to really unpack that, too. So, a, a long answer. Yeah. So, you know, this is, as, as uh, I think, as both of the scientists, the whole thing of the history, this has been, I guess, in the past, I guess, 10 years since uh, Rice and Rice came out, something yeah, like that. Yeah, more like close to 15. Yes. Okay. Um, yeah, and you know, I, I will say that, that I also wanted to think. And do, I think, um, think about what the study of memory means. I'm not a person who's a big fan of um, theory, let's say. And um, one of the things I, I came to realize as I was working on this is I stopped calling this a book about memory. The, the title notwithstanding, I kind of went back and forth with the press over the title. Um, and, and started thinking of it much more as a book about stories and storytelling. Because to me... One of the things I did feel strongly about is that a lot of the Civil War memory books, um, Carol Rodin, for example, with her, her very good um, Pickett's Charge book, and I mean, there have been, you know, so, so many of them have, I think, a sort of mechanistic way of looking at, at memory, which is sort of, you know, we, we think, or the memory of such and such event is X, but what really happened was Y. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it is sort of debunking. There's a there's an element of debunking, right? Even that's a big part of race and reunion, right? You know, we how African Americans' narrative of emancipation is sort of written out of the history. Yeah. It's about forgetting as much as it is about remembering. Yeah. Right, and and so that what I wanted to do, I didn't want to say that you know they say Sherman burned this house, but really he burnt this other building, you know, three doors down. Sure. I, I 
I wasn't interested in that at all. What interested me and, and what I do in the book is I say, okay, why are there certain kinds of stories? Why are there certain genres? You know, I, I came across so many stories, right? The house was saved because she was in love with the girl who lived there. The house was saved. <laughs> you, you'd be surprised. The house was saved because we put up a Masonic um, apron on the door, and that saved the house. Well, what's interesting to me is not whether that's why the house really saved the house. What's interesting to me is why do you need all these similar stories about houses being saved? Well, because a lot of houses were never burned, right? So you need these kinds of explanations. Or why are there so many stories about Sherman himself uh, protecting a house or, or decreeing that a house be guarded or something like that. Well, because again, the house, someone guarded the house, but maybe the reason you make it Sherman is, is to sort of, you know, it kind of dramatizes it more. Yeah. So that was more what I was interested in is, is what do these stories tell us? Why do these stories change sometimes over time? Um, and less about what was Reno, and I'm making finger quotes here because you can't see me. <laughs> So, so, what is it about Sherman that makes him sort of the gravitational center of so many stories? Uh, you know, I guess the Civil War generates a little you know, mythology, but uh, Sherman seems to get particular kinds or sets of stories attached to him. Exactly. I think that's, that's one of the big questions, right? I mean, he's actually not the first person to be this destructive. Um, you can't, you know, it's it's certainly, you know, Sheridan's Valley Campaign in 1864 is, is equally devastating. Um, I, I mean, I do think some of it is there's, like, a dramatic power mm-hmm. just to the idea of the march, especially the first part, right, the march to the sea. Um, my book deals with the whole march, so first the, the through Georgia, but then up through the Carolinas and then all the way up to the Grand Review. Mm-hmm. Um some of it, I think, is Sherman himself is uh, a master of uh, promotion, self-promotion, a little bit of manipulation. So he knew at the time turning this march into this big, scary thing would would serve a useful purpose. And then when he writes his memoirs in the 1870s, I think he... he he doesn't back away from any of that. In fact, in the case, say, of the burning of Columbia and blaming it on Wade Hampton, he kind of doubles down on it. And he says, oh, yeah, I blamed it on Wade Hampton because I knew it would really upset people. <laughs> and, you know, Wade Hampton gets really mad. And he just... So I think some of it is, is Sherman himself. And he, he does stay such a public figure. You know, he's general-in-chief of the audience, the early 1880s. Um... One of the, the things I was really surprised to find when I was doing my research was that when he dies in 1891, there's just this national outpouring of grief. Um, the press coverage, I mean, it, it was... Is it Johnston Dennis, like, funeral or something? Johnston is actually, they have become friends over the years. He was actually one of the pallbearers. Yeah. Um, and the, the story is that he, um, the funeral, he died in February, um, and the funeral was in New York, and Johnston didn't wear a hat. And the story is something said, you know, you, you should wear a hat. Sure, he wouldn't wear a hat. And then he um, <laughs> gets sick and gets pneumonia and is dead in three weeks. So 
he, he probably should have worn a hat. Well, Harrison less than you should have gotten by then when you're supposed to wear a hat when it's cold out. I know, right? <laughs> but they all think like, oh, no, not me. Impervious. Um, so, yeah, and so, so I think it's all of those reasons that, that make Sherman's march become this great symbol of destructiveness. And I think what also happens to some degree is that a lot of... Um, Reconstruction or, or sort of any devastation or any destruction is read backwards. So a lot of people like there's a big wave of um, travelers. I, I do a lot of travel accounts. I have a chapter, and there's a wave of travelers who come through in the the 1920s and 1930s looking to see you know the traces of Sherman's march, and they sort of wax rhapsodic, right? Like every time they see uh, a burnt out chimney, never thinking that perhaps in the intervening 70 years. Yeah. But shouldn't it, you know, the house went down. So, it's that kind of thing. It's very over-romanticized. He's one of those characters that's both very prominent, but he's somebody I feel that lots of people don't know very well as an individual. You know, of the Civil War generation, he's... He's got this negative cult associated with him, but he's not somebody that, that I, mean, I think most people are interested in Civil War and I sort of generally have much connection to impression either way they deal with a half dozen other people. Yeah, and I think some of that is, is at least anecdotally, or it seems to me, right? There's so much more romanticization of the, the Confederate side. And, sure. You know, I, I went to, to school in Virginia. I lived in Virginia for a long time, and the whole sort of cult of Robert E. Lee that still exists. And um, I think Sherman, too, for someone who he sort of, he was someone who simultaneously loved the spotlight and loved publicity, but also, I think, was very hard to get to know, actually. That, that there was a sort of public persona and then a private persona. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think maybe because he didn't go into politics, that also makes him maybe a little bit more of a surfer than, say, like, you know, a Grant or somebody like that. Sure. Um, and, yeah, it's, and some of it is, is, you know, maybe also certainly his post-war career um, out West is not... Um, you know, it's tough to, to find a way to celebrate that. He's basically dedicated to the extermination of Native Americans. So I think, again, all of that makes him sort of complicated. I mean, I think he's he's incredibly fascinating, obviously. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the thing you point out in the book is, is, is the, the myths of the destructive, you know, sure, I mean, he's a person with lots of sort of contradictions in his own actions. Absolutely, and he loved the South, and he loved Southerners, and and in in you know, yes, he's incredibly destructive, but then he also he orders rations left behind um, in Columbia for people, and with Johnson's more generous than yeah, he favors a very soft peace, and and what's really interesting is, of course. Um, there's a period of time in the 18, 
60s and 70s, where Sherman is actually, I wouldn't maybe call him beloved in the South, but, but not vilified in the South, because in part, I think it's his, um, you know, he's no supporter of racial equality, he's no supporter of, of civil rights for African Americans, and white Southerners see that in him and recognize that he's a sort of, he's not on their side. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, he goes back to Atlanta, um, in his capacity as general-in-chief, but he goes back to Atlanta in 1879, and he's greeted with open arms. They're they're celebrating him, they have a big ball for him. Um, So that, that again, right, like, it is sort of more complicated. So one of his stories that are collected in the book of the history of of Sherman, uh, or the story. Oh my gosh. <laughs> There's so many of them. I like um I like a lot of them. <laughs> Obviously. I like Pick two then. Oh, okay. Um if that's easier. Yeah. I like a lot of the um I like a lot of the, the stories that African Americans tell because they have not um their memories of Sherman are um have not often been told. Or, or not as as often studied, so that uh, I use really the WPA narratives pretty heavily. Um, there are about seventy people, and those are, are in general pretty fascinating because what they really represent is the um, I don't know if ambivalence is quite the right word. The the complexity, right, which is that African Americans often remember Sherman's men as liberators, sure, but also. Um, were resentful of the fact that these guys came in and took all the, fo- the food off the plantation. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's one great story that um, is actually there on my, my Sherman website um, from a guy named Claiborne Moss. And he tells the story that um, when Sherman and his men came through, there was also one of them was a guy who had been a local guy, I think, in Georgia, who has sort of joined up or is following along with Sherman's men and they steal a bunch of stuff and they take Claiborne Moss's uncle with them and then the uncle comes back a few weeks later and he has all this silver that the Union soldiers gave him and then he comes back and the old master takes the silver. Jeez. Mm, right, and I mean, you can do a lot with that. <laughs> It's a, that's that's one of the kinds of, of stories that I love. And the other, the title actually, the, the Through the Heart of Dixie piece of this comes from um, John Lewis uh, at the March on Washington um, in his capacity with SNCC at the March gave a speech. Um, and uh, part of his speech included the phrase that, that we should march like a... a and I don't have it in front of me, so I'm mangling it. But we should march through the heart of Dixie like Sherman did, an, an army of nonviolence or something like that. Not really like Sherman did, but okay. Exactly, but, but this this imagery, right, of marching through the heart of Dixie like Sherman, and um, Bernard Rustin, among other people, said this is way too inflammatory. 
you've got to take this Sherman piece out. And so he literally rewrites the speech while the other speeches are going on. He's sort of in the shadow of Lincoln himself rewriting his speech to take this Sherman reference out because that is too incendiary. That's remarkable. So you mentioned the, the website, and one of the things I thought was interesting about this, this whole project is the, the website for the project, I guess, a while ago now, wasn't it? Yeah, we first built it, um, we first launched it in 2010. So that, that was, this is our, our website at um, shermansmarch.org, where what I do is I worked with somebody from our Department of Visual Arts, several people from our Visual Arts Department and our, what's called the Imaging Research Center. And so we've created this animated map, series of maps about just the Georgia piece of the march. And then, you, so you can trace the march through Georgia and then there are little points and little pins and if you pull them up, you'll get stories of what happened in these places but from different perspectives. And we've got... Um, a bunch also of, of mini documentaries. So when we started it in 2010, well, when we finished sort of phase one in 2010, we had five. We're relaunching it this fall, kind of a soft, a soft launch until November 15th, the anniversary of the march. Um, and then we'll have altogether about 20 movies. So um, my collaborator Kelly Bell has been making more, and we also work with a group of um, undergraduate. Uh, animation and design majors who each made a movie a couple years ago, so it's it's uh, it should be back up in its new form in the next couple of days, and then we'll be adding to it over the next couple of months. But the idea was that um, you know. <laughs> I have to lead myself into how well this book is going to sell, but the, I wanted to do something um, that would have a different kind of reach um, that would be kind of visually and, in fact, orally, too. We have some sound files on it and songs and things like that, immersive, to kind of get at the idea of these different kinds of stories and that you can look at a place from different perspectives and get different stories and none of them are quote-unquote right or wrong. Um, so it's a companion to the book, but you don't need the book to understand the website. You don't need the website to understand the book. Yeah, it's frustrating because most of the you know, books that have websites, of, you know, which is really helpful, the same time as the book does, and right. this one, I guess, what you sort of were working on it while you're working on on putting together the book. Yeah, it was always working on kind of parallel tracks with it, and um, I don't have a really good explanation for for why I did that. Part of it is that um, I wanted to work on them on, on parallel tracks, I guess, and part of it is that um, a lot of the the funding for my research actually came from an. Um, American Council of Learned Societies um, Digital Innovation Grant, which allowed me to take all of 2008 off um, and do research and build the website. And so, yeah, they've been, uh, it's been helpful, actually. It's been interesting because it's very different kinds of writing. Mm -hmm. um, and, and also working with people from other disciplines, I think, really informs a lot of my ideas about storytelling and how do you get these messages across to people who are not necessarily historians, and so it's been it's been great to work on it. So, what kind of debates did you have with 
with your partner working on this project? Because both of you are historians, she's an artist. Presumably, you have sort of different values and and priorities. Uh, yes. yes, I mean, some of it has to do with you know, my thing was right, like kind of accuracy and and if we're going to present an image as historic, it has to be sort of really historic. I, that's not quite right because Kelly, my collaborator, has a real historic sensibility. Um, a lot of it is is share not tell, right? So that. I don't have to write a description of something because the visuals will carry it. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of it was, was actually you really do have to write differently. Um, my natural writing style, which has sort of pauses and big words and digressions. You have a footnote at the end. And a footnote at the end is difficult to do for somebody to read. Um, and, and usually we did these three-minute documentaries and these mini-documentaries, as we call them, and these three-minute films are really only about 300 words. I mean, there are, there are definitely days where 300 words, I'm just getting warmed up. Yeah. That's the background. So learning how to, to work that way, um, thinking about um, imagery. One of the first films we made was the, the story of Zora Fair, who's a... She's known as the girl spy of the Confederacy. She was a teenage girl living outside of Atlanta who, um, this would have been actually in the, the summer before, or, or the fall before the march begins, but sneaks into Atlanta and sneaks into Sherman's headquarters disguised, actually, according to the story, as a black woman by, like, staining her face and dressing in rags and all of that. And um, our first few stabs at, at Zora Fair, people said to us, you know, the, the racial politics of this are really not not good. So, you know, how do you tone down the language or shift the imagery in a little bit to make it true to the story, but also not offensive? Especially for people who are coming to it, you know, who... Right. The websites is, is you have no idea who's going to end up looking at it and, and what right. background and context they're going to provide for it. Right. Yeah. One of the, the issues that we've been grappling with as we've rebuilt the site, um, it used to be the site was built in flash and everything was kind of canned into the site, locked down into the site. Now it's built in HTML5 and the phones are all being hosted on Vimeo. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things Kelly and I actually decided yesterday was that we were not going to make the films accessible. You can't just punch in a URL or you can't use a search engine to find these films on Vimeo. to take the films out of context. The only exception is we have a little trailer and that people can see. But otherwise we want it to sort of function as a coherent whole. And this is the first digital project you've been involved with. Uh, I guess you first got involved in uh, with the Valley of the Shadow in 1993, if I remember. Yes, yes. <laughs> I was one of the first people to work on the Valley Project, um, and I was the manager for part one, and I took you off. So that was part of the reason also I wanted to do this digital project on Sherman was that I had done all this work on the Valley Project, but I didn't really do anything with, much with digital history for several years because I was finishing my first book and all the things that you have to do before you get tenure. 
Um, and so I wanted to come back to it because I actually do enjoy thinking about these digital projects and thinking about audience and, and those kinds of questions. So exactly, that's why I, I kind of came back to it. So I wanted to make uh, sort of the origins of, of digital history and, and you know, what these kinds of things look like since now 20 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 20 years ago when it's in the 19th century, but when it's in the... Twenty to twenty-first century seems weird. Uh, you know, I guess when we started, the internet wasn't even really around, and the worldwide web. Yeah, was... Our first um, year, year and a half of the Valley Project, we didn't have the worldwide web. We didn't really know about it, and so our first Valley Project demonstrations, we had had two different ones. One was built, I think it was built somehow in WordPerfect, where Ed would punch it like he press a G and you'd get a picture of the <laughs> census records and then you'd push an H and you'd get a picture of the guy. There was a lot of imagine if someday you could connect these things. Um, and then because also you have to remember in 1993, 1994 a lot of places that we went didn't have data projectors. So we also had Yeah, transparencies. I spent a whole day using this fancy color printer to print color transparencies and it kills me. I don't know what happened to them. I think we, we threw them out at some point. Um, so that to us, starting to use the World Wide Web in probably 94, 95 was a huge revelation. Um, but even then, you know, to, to look at the Valley Project site now, it, it is still pretty impressive, but it, it's... Uh, a lot of it, it, and especially its first design, um, was based on um, making it accessible to people using dial-up modems and not very powerful computers, and so... Well, it, I guess it, it originally came with a CD-ROM, I think that was, you know... The it did have a CD-ROM, actually, because of the fact that in... We worked on the CD-ROM sort of 95, 96, and that was basically because people didn't have the good kind of computer access to be able to see all the beautiful visuals that we had. And so that's that was the point of the CD-ROM. And also because um, in the education market, um, uh, fat teachers were afraid to just let kids loose on the web. So, yeah, we, we were sort of the last gasp of the, the dedicated CD-ROM kind of immersive experience. And the saddest part of that is, of course, you can't watch it anymore. You know, it doesn't work on the um, sure. computer. Sure. Because it doesn't, doesn't mean that. Yeah, the Mac, I mean, you got to go back pretty far for it to work. Um, but, you know, again, that, that, that kind of experience of making it up and, and learning about it. And for years, we didn't know what to do with our newspaper images because they were huge. And every six months or so, we'd hear, oh, there's this thing called vector compression, or we hear these guys in Israel are doing something. And finally, the technology sort of caught up with, with what we had envisioned, and now the newspaper images are PDFs. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the early 90s, mid-90s, we had no idea that that would work. So, so starting with that, did you have much experience with computing, or did you jump into it in your first year of graduate school? And... <laughs> I, I didn't know anything about computers. Um, no, they taught me me uh, everything I needed to know at the time. They taught me how to use Unix. 
they taught me how to program in HTML, and and it's it's the model actually that I still follow for digital projects is the one. Um, the Vendor Project came out of this Institute for Advanced Technology in the Humanities at Virginia, which brought together people who work in the humanities and a dedicated technical staff. With the theory being that that people in the humanities are never going to be as good at programming as people who are, are programmers. Sure. Um, and that's kind of how uh, that's that's sort of how we've done the Sherman Project too, is working with this imaging research center at um, at UMBC. Is is they I always tell people that I know just enough to ask for things, mm-hmm. but not enough to actually really build them myself. Um, you know, with HTML5, they they set up the the new programming for the. Um, Sherman site is based off of WordPress, so it's been set up and our programmers have set it up so that I actually can do things with it. I feel very proud of myself because, you know, even I can do WordPress. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that, that in a lot of ways that's the most successful collaboration because then that way you're getting the very best programming and the very best technical skill and, and Kelly as a visual artist can make things that are extraordinarily beautiful and creative and yet from their perspective, what they're getting is is the very best content. You know, my skills as a historian. Why do you think more historians don't jump into doing digital projects? I think it's a couple things. First of all, they are time consuming and expensive. Yeah. Um, so so time and money, okay. So the time and money. I think also a lot of departments still don't value digital work or don't know how to value digital work. I mean, I'm fortunate that that UMBC, which I came to in um, 2000, one of the reasons they hired me was because of my work on the Valley Project, because I could do um, these things. And so they they valued that, you know, they valued it when I came up for tenure. They valued um, my digital projects, my my Sherman work, you know, has gotten a lot of, it's gotten funding from UMBC. and, and there's a recognition of the amount of work that goes into it, mm-hmm. but a lot of places don't recognize it. And I think that um, you know, if the standard for promotion and tenure is still a book, yeah. you know, that I think it's possible or changing on that. It's, it's getting better. Yeah. Um, and I do think also the barriers to entry have gotten lower. Right. That that with WordPress. Which, you know, obviously you can use for a blog, but it doesn't just have to be a blog. I, I do think that it's getting better mm-hmm. um, in the historical profession. More and more people are doing digital projects or including a digital component. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you at North Dakota, right before I left uh, North Dakota State, uh, we had a digital public historian who did most lots of digital stuff. And mm-hmm. we had a sort of departmental conversation about you know, if we're going to hire somebody, what kinds of, you know, standards are we going to have for this person? If the usual standards are book for tenure, right. how can we measure other things? You know? Right, and in many ways I think it is akin to the rise of public history, right? This sense that, that you know, with public history, right, you have to evaluate differently. You have to value differently mm-hmm. because... The standards are, are different, and and one thing I've of course always emphasized in my digital work is you are asking different historical questions. You're not um, you're not doing sort of different 
your standards for research and, and evaluating evidence and all of that are not different. It's the way that you're presenting your your findings. It's it's a different. Um, you think about audience differently, but you don't. You know, it's not that. My, my website is no less well-researched than your book is. Yeah. And my book is. And, and one of the things we always put on, our, on the website are we put out a bibliography. We have credits, right? Because that's one of the issues with the web is that often things are sort of authorless. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've always felt very strongly that you need to have credits and and sources and, and have the things that, that we know legitimate written work should be used to legitimate digital work, too. And so you've just come off, uh, I guess, a couple of your term as the president of the Society for Civil War Historians. Yes, I have. Uh, You sound happy to be uh, done with that responsibility. Yeah, I'm sure it's (laughs) done with the responsibility. I'm still on the um, advisory board Mm -hmm. for two years, and um, I definitely enjoyed it. I enjoyed getting to know so many other people in the field, um, you know, I, I could not have done anything without the incredible help of the, the Richard Center at Penn State and um, Bill Weir, sure. uh, Matt Ashton and, and Bobby Singer, and um, Kelly Janey from Purdue, who's the new president, is going to do a terrific, terrific job. Um, but I think, you know, that's that's a great, the Society for Civil War Historians has been going through, I think, a real um, period of growth, and, and if, if my presidency contributed to that in any way, I'm very happy. Uh, I guess you're very lucky to be able to do it sort of right in the successful Yeah, it's been a great time to be a civil war historian. <laughs> and it's funny, you know, because I've been working on Sherman for so many years, I feel like the first few years of the sesquicentennial have, have kind of passed me by, but now now's the big Sherman moment. So <laughs> I've got a busy few months ahead of me. So how, how do you think the sesquicentennial is going? Is it what you thought it would be? that I had a lot of preconceived notions about it. I guess if, if there's any preconceived notion I have, it's that I would have expected there to be a little bit more national play yeah. because it appears to me that most sesquicentennial events or commemorations or anything like that have been much more local and regional. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think a lot of it depends on... Um, you know, what state you live in. I, I imagine when you were living in North Dakota, there wasn't a whole lot of sesquicentennial commemoration. Not really, no. You know, but, but um, so in that regard, I think, you know, I wish that there had been maybe a little bit more of a national um, conversation about about the meaning of the Civil War. Um, it certainly has, has proven, you know, interesting Civil War is still high. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if everyone's going to wake up in, in 2015 and be like, oh, we're so done with this. Um, I do think it'll be really interesting as we start hitting the, um, the, the reconstruction anniversaries, which are much more um, fat. Yeah. I think, or Reconstruction as a whole is fat. You know, you can feel good about the, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, but you can't be sort of uniformly celebratory of them. Yeah. Um, and I think that that will be really interesting to see because certainly, you know, at the, the 100th anniversary, I don't think I'm going to be a secret of 100th anniversary of Reconstruction. 
commemorations. Um, I guess the, the big difference I've noticed between people that just was the town and just would have read about the centennial was, you know, the dominant narrative of the centennial was one in which there was this effort at beginning to celebrate the war as a heroic event, and I don't think very many of us are in a heroic sort of mindset for things. And no, not at all. And again, it's it's not, and it's. Um, I'm all for celebrating the the complexities or or exploring the complexities. I think, you know, African Americans and emancipation were largely written out of the 100th anniversary, so, which is amazing given that it, of course, coincided with the Civil Rights Movement. So I think having having that more of a national conversation on these issues um, in 2014, 2015 was really powerful. so, but I, I do wonder too. I mean, if I weren't a Civil War historian, I don't know that I would even notice the Susquehanna for the, you know, the periodic like special issue in the Washington Post or whatever. Yeah, I think I think that's I think that's right. It's hard for us to tell what the, how the rest of the world sees what we're doing, but uh, right, right. Um, hmm. So, it's about a now. What are the big plans for the next project, or is it too early to ask that? started the next project because of I feel like I'm still sort of batting cleanup on, on Sherman. Um, I'm going to do in association with my website, I'm going to do a day-by-day blog of the march all drawn from primary sources. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, so I'm getting going on, on pulling the sources for that. Um, and uh, I've got some other sort of short pieces about Sherman to write. And so I'm still, uh, I'm still really going to be Working on Sherman probably until next uh, next May, till the, the anniversary of the Grand Review. So, okay. well, excellent. It was great talking with you. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you, David. Well, I want to apologize for some of the hisses and clicks in the sound recording. There, I guess when you uh, use Skype, you get what you pay for. Um, Nonetheless, I thought it was a really interesting conversation that I had with Anne. It's a really great book that she's come up with, come out with, and uh, I'm hoping a lot of people get a chance to look at that and also get a look, chance to look at the website that she's built to go alongside it. Uh, as always, if you uh, have questions or comments about the show, you can leave those uh, in an email at AmericanHistoryUntucked at gmail.com. You can uh, like the show on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Uh, and leave a uh, review on iTunes if you like. Uh, Until next time, I'm David Silkenet.